Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead. It is always my uh, privilege and honor to be able to open up the word and share with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to look at a crazy passage together this morning, and so I'm looking forward to it. Um, as you've noticed, obviously, um, we're taking a little break from our series in Romans, um, and we wanted to do this two-week sort of short series on baptism. We'll be back in Romans next week. We'll be back in line with the, the study book. So if you have your study book, you can look into that and be preparing for that for next week. Um, but we just wanted to talk about baptism for a couple weeks. On March 22nd, so two weeks from now, we'll be having a baptism service. I would love to tell you that this was all planned out and orchestrated because we, you know, are that on point and we just, this, service, this series was to go with that. It's actually... Um, I won't say coincidental because we believe that we have a sovereign God. So God orchestrated all this together. But um, that wasn't the goal. All that to say, that wasn't the goal. In fact, um, when I decided to, to preach about baptism, it wasn't because of the service coming up. It was rather just because baptism is this beautiful, powerful, loaded symbol of the gospel and of God's goodness and of so many aspects of what it means for us to believe in him. And there's so much wonderful about baptism. And yet, and yet, like anything symbolic, we run a, a risk that there's this danger that we can get into to where baptism just becomes a thing we do. And um, especially if you grew up in, in almost any kind of church, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that practiced baptism, you kind of can get into this just, it's a thing you do. And you can lose sight of what's behind it, you can lose sight of what it means, and it can just become a ritual. I don't want it to be that. I want it to be that when we have a baptism, when you see somebody get baptized, or when you, and we've talked about this, and we'll talk about this more today, when you look back, if you have been baptized, when you look back on your own baptism, that you look back at it, not just as like, oh, that was that checklist thing we do, because Christians do it, and you, it, it's weird, right? And we said this last week, it's really, if you think about it, it's really weird, okay? Because you're getting up in front of a group of people and being dunked underwater and brought back up. That's weird, okay? But, but that maybe, maybe as we look into this and think about it, that you'll look back on your own baptism, not as just like, yeah, it was this weird thing I did, but rather you'll look back on it and from it you'll remember truths that have serious, true impact and meaning and practical application in your own life and in your own heart. If nothing else, if nothing else from these two weeks, my hope is that we will see the beauty and the power of baptism in a new way that maybe even awakens or reawakens a sense of awe and a sense of wonder at the gospel and who God is and what he's done. And if we can start making that connection, and it becomes more than just a simple routine, but it becomes something that creates in us a, a, an emotional, visceral response at God's goodness for us, that's where we're headed. Last week, we talked about maybe the predominant symbol of baptism, which is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and our identification and our union with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This week, I want to talk about another core symbol of baptism, and honestly, the one that probably would have been foremost in most of the early Christians' minds when they thought about baptism. My hope, and so hear me on this, my hope is that you'll take last week and this week and put them together, because baptism, like I said, is this multi-layered symbol, and so I'm hopeful that you won't take like either, it's either or, it's both, and both of these are really true, and what is it? What am I talking about? Well, well, I'll get there. First, I want to back up and give you a little bit of context, a little bit of history here, okay, because I think it's important to understanding where we're going. One of the things that um, I was having a conversation about this last week, one of the things that's hard when we approach the topic of baptism in the New Testament, there's not a lot of like 
concentrated, clear, like, here's what you should do when you baptize someone. This is what baptism is. This is what it looks like. Um, the other major ordinance or sacrament, or however you want to phrase it, that, that we um, observe is communion or the Lord's Supper. There are much clearer and much more concentrated teachings on here's what you should do, here's what it should look like, here's why you do it. Baptism is not quite that way, partly, partly because when the New Testament was being written, when Jesus was teaching, when um, there's a guy named John who baptized people, when he was baptizing, all of that, when all of that was going on, it was within a specific cultural context of first century Judaism. And in first century Judaism, there was a, a, an understanding that backed up and went into their understanding of what we refer to as baptism. So I'm going to look at that a little bit this morning because I think it's going to help us understand and maybe actually help with some confusion over baptism. We talked about this last week that the word baptize is a, a, a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo. But it literally, if a first century, um, first century Jew or first century uh, Christian were to say the word baptizo, what they were saying was to wash. Literally to submerge or immerse for the purpose of washing, to cleanse. Now we hear the word baptism as this specialized Christian word, but it was really a reference just to, to washing. <clears throat> washing purifying, cleansing was an important part of many of the Jewish ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals that a first century Jew would have been familiar with. If you go back to what we refer to as the Old Testament, what a first century Jew would have referred to as the law, you will see a lot of instructions on how uh, Jewish people following the law were supposed to cleanse or purify themselves. Cleanse and purify themselves both physically, and there was, of course, absolutely a hygienic aspect to it, but also spiritually to cleanse themselves from the stain of their sin. Because within the Jewish law, there are all these things that you're not supposed to do, and then there's all these instructions for what you do after you've done the things you're not supposed to do, right? And so, for example, one of the biggest um, ceremonies or celebrations or highest holy days of the Jewish year was a day called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, which is also known as the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the community would gather together and the priest would take a lamb or a baby goat, actually a goat, um, that was, it was young and it was without blemish, so basically a, as close as they could get to a perfect little baby goat, and the priest would lay his hands on the goat, and he would pray, and in his prayer, he would transfer all the sin, all the wrong, all the evil everything that the community had done wrong for that past year, take all of that and transfer it all onto that goat. And then the goat would be given to a man who would walk it out of the community, out of the bounds of, of, of their land, and let it go in the wilderness, and it would escape into the wilderness and go off by itself and die. It became the, this is where we get the phrase, scapegoat. Because all of the sin, all of the wrong of all the people was placed on it, and then it was sent out to take their sin as far away from them as possible, and then to die and let their sin die with it. <clears throat> and then, and then, the priest who had done that, who had prayed that prayer and transferred all the, all the sin and all the guilt onto the goat, would go in, into the temple, would remove his garments... Because now they were also stained with sin from having been in contact with the goat. Destroy his garments. And then he himself would go through a ceremonial cleansing. He would physically wash himself to wash off any remnants of sin. Any stain that might have been left behind. To cleanse himself. To purify himself of all the sin. 
As time progressed, and by the time when Christ would come, that ceremony had kind of evolved, had kind of expanded to where it wasn't just the priest one day a year who would have to purify himself, but all Jewish people got to where they would go through that ceremonial cleansing, and they would go, and if it was either before a holy day, before they were going to celebrate a holy day, or if they were going to go into the temple, they had to purify themselves, because to be in the temple was to be in the presence of the Lord, and to be in the presence of the Lord, they couldn't have any sin or any stain, any wrongdoing on them. So they had to get it all off. And so they would, they would wash themselves in these little um, pools that were called mikvahs, or mikvehs. Um, and they would go down into the mikvah and cleanse themselves to wash off their sin. Now if you were to see one, this is an ancient one. If you were to see, these still exist today because this is still a, a process um, and if you are from a Jewish background or if you have friends who are, you might be familiar with this because they still have modern day mikvahs, but they look much more like a small pool or a small tub. Very, very, very similar to if you grew up in a, a Protestant church, what we would refer to as a baptistry or a baptismal. Because when Jesus talks about baptism, Or when John was talking about baptism, or when Paul does, or when Peter does, or any of these first century Christians talks about baptism, this would be the picture that the first century Jew would have in mind. This is what they would think of, because again, when they hear the word baptizo, they don't think baptism, that Christian thing, they think of washing, cleansing, and this is how they did it. Here's an interesting side note. One of the rules for a mikvah and even still today, is that the water in the mikvah had to be living water, which meant for them um, it had to be come from a, a, a running sort of spring or a well. It couldn't just be brought in like in jugs or in jars. It had to be a living source of water. Um, that phrase, living water, becomes significant later on in the New Testament. <clears throat> But this is the context, that's kind of beside the point, I apologize. This is the context that the first century church would have had when they heard the word baptism. And when they thought about being baptized, they would have associated it very much with a ritual that they were accustomed to, which was meant to remove sin from their bodies. But here's the problem. The ritual of cleansing, the ritual of the mikvah, the ritual from the Day of Atonement, washing yourself in that water symbolized and very much was capable of washing off what was on the outside. All this sin, all the wrong that others have done or this this sinful world in which they lived, or even as they sinned, the sin that the, 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 the consequences and the negativity that would accumulate on them, all the exterior sin, and they're washing it off because they're physically washing their body. But what do you do about the sin that's not out there, but the sin that's in here? About the sin that you can't just wash off but that is actually in you. So it's with this context in mind that we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, and honestly what Peter does here, and this is a really complicated passage, I apologize, but what he does is really draw a contrast between this idea of this physical washing versus the spiritual reality of what it looks like to be washed by a different source of living water. So that's what we're going to look at, 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, I have to give you some context in 1 Peter because we haven't been in this book, and I think it's important to understanding. Peter, who wrote this letter, um, was one of Jesus' apostles, one of the 12 apostles. In fact, he was one of Jesus' closest um, followers. He was with him through almost everything that he experienced on this earth. And he's at this point, this is after Jesus has 
died and risen again and, and is gone. And, and Peter's writing this letter to what we refer to or what is referred to as the diaspora or the dispersion, which is this historical um, kind of event context where Jewish people have been spread, dispersed away from the physical land of Israel out into what was at that time the known world. And Peter writes this letter to be distributed to these churches, these early first century Christians who were living outside of geographic Israel. And because they're living outside of that geographic cultural hub of Judaism and Christianity, they're living in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards them. Hostile towards their beliefs, hostile towards their customs and their culture, and they have to know, and they have to understand, and they have to decide how they're going to live as followers of Christ, as believers in the gospel, in a culture that doesn't support or affirm or agree with their way of thinking and their way of living. And so Peter writes this letter into that context to say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus even in the face of hostility even in the face of persecution, even for many of them with physical, financial, very practical persecution and hardship. And as he writes this, he writes to comfort them. But he also writes to urge them to continue to believe, to continue to follow, and as a group, to continue to stay unified. In fact, if you back up chapter 3, verse 8, he says, finally, All of you, which I love that he says, finally, if you look, it's in the middle of the letter. So Peter is just like every preacher you've ever heard, right? When you say, in conclusion, and you're like, yeah, right. Finally, halfway through, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so Peter says, the key, the key to maintaining your faith in a culture that is not supportive of your faith, is to be unified with others who are of a like faith. And so that's kind of where he's going. And he says, and in part of that, as you face this suffering, as you face this persecution, you have to always put it in the context of the gospel. Because that's what it always comes back to. And so that's where we start in verse 18. Peter says this, for, he's saying, as you suffer, continue to follow Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' death and resurrection, and we talked about this last week, so if you weren't here last week, um, for the first part of this series, I I highly recommend you go back and listen to it, because it kind of, like I said, frames all of this. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is his declaration of victory. It's Jesus showing that he is ruler and conqueror over all. And so when we feel, as Christians, as believers, if we feel like we are facing opposition that is overwhelming to us, it's so important for us to remember that we are joined to the one who is victor over all. His death, burial, and resurrection is our comfort, and it's our security in intense suffering and pain. And it reminds us that we have an ultimate victory, even if we don't see it right now and right here where we are, even as we fail and struggle in this life, we know and we have assurance because we're united to Christ that ultimately we will be victorious too, like him. And that's what Peter's saying here in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then it goes into verse 19, and this is where it gets really weird, and so I'm sorry Um, because verses 19 19 and 20 are... So when I was preparing this, I was really tempted to just start in verse 21. But verse 21 says baptism corresponds to this, so I have to know what the this is. But 19 and 20 are just, I'm sorry, they're just, they're weird, okay? And nobody, and this is why I feel comfortable saying that, okay? Because if you study... And go out and, and study it for yourself if, if you want to. Nobody agrees on what's going on in these two verses, okay? Um, there's a whole bunch of different interpretations of what this is about. And, and what everybody says, there's no consensus about it. But what everybody says, and everybody says that, like scholars who agree with each other on almost everything else, but on this, they're like, 
we just, we can't say anything for certain, so, so we hold this very loosely. But then they always say whatever interpretation they lean toward is kind of the, the main interpretation, right? So they're like, scholars generally tend to agree this, and then you read somebody else and they're like, so most scholars will agree that something totally different. I was like, well, okay. So all that to say, um, let's read it, in, in which the Spirit, it refers back to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who made Jesus alive, in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed, which also means to preach or declare the gospel, to the spirits in prison. Nobody's 100% clear on what prison is. Most people have a pretty firm idea on that. But because they, these people in prison, formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, what does Noah have to do with all this? While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What? What is he talking about? So here's the general, um, and I'll just, just give you this because, we, I, just, because I have to, okay? I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> the, general cons- the general consensus, there isn't one. The main three interpretations um, that I'm familiar with, and if you have a better one, that's cool because nobody's sure. Um, either, A, one, um, maybe this is saying that Jesus, after he was um, crucified, but before he rose again, rose again. So in those three days, maybe he went down into hell where there were people um, who had been, so that's prison is hell, and that there were spirits of people who had been alive in the days of Noah and hadn't believed in Jesus or hadn't believed in God, excuse me, then. And so Jesus went down into hell and preached the gospel to those people. That's interpretation number one. Number two, maybe what this is saying that in the days of Noah, that Jesus through the Spirit, the Spirit of God worked through Noah, and that Noah was speaking by God's Spirit to the people that he was preaching to or proclaiming to, to, to repent and to believe and to follow and to possibly get in the ark, and they didn't believe because we know Noah didn't have much success in rallying the troops. It was him and his family and everybody else perished. So maybe that's what this is saying. It's referring to something that happened then, and those people are now in prison. Um, They're suffering because they didn't believe then. That's interpretation two. Interpretation three is that maybe what this is referring to is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, now that he's resurrected and he's proclaimed victory over the grave, that he at some point after his resurrection went down into this other realm to find the spirits, uh, what it refers to in verse 22 as the angels, authorities, and powers who have been subjected to him, and he did basically like a victory lap and went down there and said, I am victorious over all. I have defeated death. I've defeated you, and you can't win because I'm Jesus, and I win, and now I've even defeated death, so ha ha, right? And so that's interpretation three. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I can see all three. I can see problems with all three. I can see benefits of all three, but <laughs> he Peter, in verse 21, connects something about baptism to this. So what from that, so hang with me, please. What from that is clear enough that we can understand what Peter's talking about? Because I think the rest of this is clear enough that we can look back to those two verses and not be like, I have to throw the whole thing out because I don't understand. Clearly, clearly he's saying that Jesus death, burial, and resurrection is related to and corresponds with Noah and his family being rescued from condemnation because they believed and trusted what God said to him, that they were carried through, rescued, saved, when everyone else around them perished. Right, and that's what it says. Eight, the, uh, a few, eight persons were brought safely through water, and he takes that connection of water to connect it to baptism. And he says, just like those people were rescued, baptism, which corresponds to this, and the Greek word there that's translated as correspond has correspond. Cor- I can't talk as corresponds, has to do with what we call typology or a type symbol, where something in the Old Testament is symbolic 
of something in the New Testament. This is one of the beautiful, amazing, supernatural things about Scripture. To where, you know, there's, there's a very strong push and a lot of people want to say that the, the Bible was obviously just written by men and, and later on people have put meaning into it that was never intended. <clears throat> there are supernatural things about Scriptures that would be practically impossible for people over thousands and thousands of years to have orchestrated in the way that it actually works out. In what we refer to as the Old Testament, there are events, actual, real, historical things that happen, people who lived and died that are real and actually happen, and yet, when we see in the New Testament the truth of the gospel, those things in the Old Testament take on completely new and different meanings. And the whole story clicks together in a way that is, it's just supernatural. And Peter is saying here that Noah and what happened with him is one of those things. It's real. It's historical. It actually happened. And, and it has this amazing correspondence to what happens with Jesus. That because of Jesus, some of us, those who believe, can be and are rescued from condemnation that we can be brought through and saved because of Jesus, just like Noah and his family were saved and rescued because Noah believed and because God chose to rescue him. And so he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, so here's controversial part number, I don't know, what are we up to now, four or five? Um, This phrase, baptism now saves you, has created a lot of confusion and a lot of disagreement within the church. Um, It seems to be saying, wait, let me back up. So we, and and we talked about this last week, and if you've been through a membership class, you'll know this. Um, We at Trailhead hold to what, what we refer to as the memorial view of baptism, which means that we view baptism as a symbol a symbol which represents and memorializes or pays homage to something that Christ does spiritually inside of a believer. That we do not believe that baptism itself, the actual physical act of baptism, confers God's grace on someone. We don't believe that you get grace by doing anything. Because if you did, it wouldn't be grace. So we believe that the Bible teaches that baptism is just a demonstration, a proclamation of what has already happened when God gave his grace to us. That you are not saved because you get baptized. And that if you believe the gospel and never get baptized, that by God's grace you're still saved or rescued. Now that seems to go very contrary to this verse, doesn't it? Baptism now saves you. But you have to look at this in the context of the whole verse, okay? This is really critical. First, remember, baptism, the word baptism here is baptiza, the noun form of baptizo, baptizma, um, which again, to a first century uh, Christian reading Peter's letter, would have read just as washing, cleansing, right? And when it says it now saves you, the now is saying, look, connect this to what happened with Noah. And, here's the most important part, look at the next phrase, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not Peter is saying, the physical act. The physical act is not what saves you. You are not rescued because you clean yourself up. You are not saved or rescued because you do something. It's not the physical act of removing dirt from your body that rescues you. Rather, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism 
symbolizes what Jesus does in our hearts, what God does in our hearts, not what physically happens to us. The physical, the exterior, is just a symbol of what's going on on the inside. The baptism isn't about cleaning yourself up on the outside. It's about appealing to God, begging God, coming to God and asking him for a good conscience. Let's talk, let's talk about conscience. Let's talk about our conscience. When we hear the word conscience, what we think of usually is that voice in our heads that's telling us what's right and what's wrong, right? Our conscience, which should be our guide, is telling us, do this, don't do that. <clears throat> However, I think for most of us, and the way, honestly, the New Testament more frequently talks about conscience, is not a voice telling us, do this or don't do this. Most frequently, the way the New Testament refers to conscience is a voice in our heads that's telling us, you shouldn't have done that, right? Your conscience, our conscience, and what Peter's talking about here and what most of the time scripture means by conscience is the sense and the understanding that all of us have that we have done wrong. In fact, most of the time when we talk about a conscience, we usually put a, a word in front of it. We usually talk about having a guilty conscience, because I have and you have and all of us have within us a sense of right and wrong, yes, but most of the time what that sense of right and wrong is, is telling us, and you're wrong. We know we've done wrong. We know that we are stained by our choices, by our sins. And for many of us, for many of us, the big question Maybe the biggest question is, what do I do about my guilty conscience? How do I deal with that? How do I handle these feelings of guilt and shame that are attached and associated to so much of what I have done? How can I take my past and all of the baggage and all of the weight that that presses down on me, and how can I live in light of what I know I have done wrong. Now, there's really, honestly, two ways of dealing with conscience, with a guilty conscience. And we do both. <clears throat> One is that we just try to convince ourselves, or we do convince ourselves, that what we've done actually wasn't all that wrong. Or two, we find forgiveness for what we've done wrong. And that's pretty much the only two options. Either one, and what most of us tend to operate most of the time, is to, to soothe our conscience by convincing ourselves that the wrong wasn't wrong. We redefine what we've done. I know it looks like this, but it's not actually that, it's this. This thing is bad, but I didn't actually do that thing. I did this thing, and let me give it a different name, and let me explain in my head. This is, these are not like, sometimes these are vocal conversations we have with other people. Most of the time, these are within ourselves conversations we have. Let me explain to myself why what I did is not the same as the bad thing that it sounds like, okay? Because there's huge differences, right? So we redefine it. Or, or we put it into context. Okay, yes, I did that, but I only did that because, right, surrounding mitigating circumstances, I wouldn't have done it at any other time or for any other reason, but in this context, you would have to because it was the only option, and it was really, and, and it just were, and everyone else would have done the same thing. In fact, everyone else did do the same thing, so why are you bugging me, okay? Because this is, this is just the, this is the culture, and this is how things fit, and this is just what it, in context, it's not really all that bad. Or, or, this is probably my personal favorite, um, we create a, com I, I, <clears throat> I say we, I, I create a comparison. Yes, I did that, but I didn't do that right? Yes, this is bad, but it's not as bad as, right? And yes, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as, right? Because you can always find a point of comparison that's going to be helpful, right? There's always something worse you could have done, and at least you didn't do that. Me, I, at least I didn't do that, right? So all of those, all of those are ways that we try to ease our conscience by convincing ourselves that we shouldn't actually be feeling guilty at all to begin with. 
Does it work? I mean, it, it kind of, it can, sort of. In fact, the scripture talks about, um, Paul talks about having a seared conscience. That's a nice visual image, right? When you sear something to toughen it up on the outside. Paul's saying you can get to a point where you talk to, convince yourself, abuse your conscience enough that it just hardens to where you don't even actually recognize what you do wrong as wrong anymore. Okay? Um, and I would say, you know people like that, but I, the truth is all of us can be people like that. We, we can do that in different areas. We can get to a point where what's wrong doesn't even feel wrong anymore. <clears throat> I just found out this week, I, I had never known this, um, in the original novel, Pinocchio, I, did, I didn't even know there was an original novel, Pinocchio, but in the original novel, Pinocchio, um, Jiminy Cricket, he doesn't have a name, he's just the, the talking cricket, and he talks to Pinocchio early on in the novel. He tells him he needs to go to school and get a job. Pinocchio takes a mallet, throws it at Jiminy Cricket, and he dies. <laughs> and Walt Disney changed it all. But let's be honest, that's a much more real representation of how most of us deal with our conscience, isn't it? You're wrong. You've sinned. Shut up! I don't know. Um, that's really good aim, too, by the way. I don't... Okay. Um, we can get to a place where we silence our conscience. But it doesn't solve anything. It makes us feel better. Yes. Or it can but our guilt still remains. We might not feel guilty, but we're still culpable. Let me put it in a, in a context I think all of us will understand. When you hurt someone, even if you can convince yourself that what you did wasn't that bad, the other person is still hurt, right? Right? So if what scripture teaches us about our sin is that it's an offense not just against other people who live here on earth, but against the God of all creation, a holy God. And when we sin, we're rebelling against him. Whether we feel like that's okay or not does not matter. We're still guilty of sinning against a holy and perfect God. So to sear our conscience, to convince ourselves that what is wrong is not actually wrong, solves nothing. The only real option we have then is to be forgiven. Now again, we approach this in different ways. <clears throat> Many of us go to try to find forgiveness by trying to make up for what we have done wrong, trying to work for some kind of restitution, try to pay some kind of penance. If I do enough good things, maybe they'll outweigh the bad things. If I can go and fix what I broke, then maybe I won't feel bad about having broken it, which is a great idea. It's a great idea, but it doesn't work either. It doesn't work either because, again, we're talking about an offense against a holy and perfect and righteous God, and there's no possible way that we could ever be good enough to make up for what we've done wrong. There's no amount of penance we can pay. There's no level of morality that we can achieve that would ever be good enough to make up for what we have done wrong. That in the face of a holy and perfect God, the idea that we can work and achieve forgiveness is, well, it's almost laughable. And so our conscience, if it's honest, will tell us that our works are not good enough. Our excuses are not good enough. Our logic is not good enough. The only thing 
that can cleanse our conscience, Peter tells us in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. That's us trying to clean ourselves up. That's not what saves us. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience, only God can do it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only God can forgive our sins. And it's only accomplished through what Jesus did. This takes us back and it connects us to what we looked at last week in the book of Colossians. So if you want to look at Colossians 2, and we can put it back up on the screen. We looked at these verses last week, but it fits in so perfectly here. Colossians 2, this is verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you had a guilty conscience because you were guilty But you who are dead, God made alive together with him, having, here's the word, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. That's forgiveness. He cancels the record with its legal demands. All the punishment we deserve, it's canceled. How? This he set aside Nailing it to the cross. Jesus' death takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, everything we've done wrong, and Jesus' death pays the penalty for our sin. And it is through his death that our debt is canceled. Jesus is, here's the picture, Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. That when God told those nation of Israel way, way, way back to practice Yom Kippur, he was picturing this. He was picturing Jesus. That all of our sins were going to be put onto one, not a physical, actual lamb, but the one who's referred to in the New Testament as the perfect lamb of God. The only man who ever lived a spotless life would take all our sins on himself and would die, and in his death, our sins would die too. And we'd be put so far away from us That they would never be able to come back on us again. But then Jesus always takes it to another level. Because unlike that scapegoat that ran away and then died on its own, Jesus came back. And he brought victory over death. Again, this is what we talked about last week, but it's so connected here. Jesus takes our sin and wins the victory over our sin. So that we can be made clean. Jesus deals with our sin, not by ignoring our sin, but by absorbing our sin. He doesn't look at our sin and tell us, no, it's not that bad. I love you anyway. He looks at our sin and says, it is that bad, but because I love you, I'm going to take it from you. And I'm going to do what you cannot do. I am going to clean you. And I'm going to clean you outside and inside. And when we get baptized, when we get baptized, we're saying, I don't just need to clean off the outside. I don't just need to make myself look better. I need to be cleansed all over, everywhere, and Jesus has done it. And I'm totally forgiven. And I'm totally clean. And look at verse 18. This is so awesome. For Christ also suffered. What's the next word? Once for sins. Hey, how often did they have Yom Kippur? Every year. How often did they have to get into the mikveh? Every time they were going to go into the temple. Why? Because they'd clean themselves off. They'd send their sins off with the scapegoat. And then what would they do? What do you do? What do I do? We sin some more. 
And we gather some more dirt, and we gather some more dust, and we get dirty again, and so we have to go clean ourselves again. And they had to do it year after year after year. Jesus did it once, and it's done, because he's perfect, because he's the spotless lamb. Because when he absorbs our sins, he didn't just absorb the sins from the past year, he absorbed them all. Past, present, future. In fact, unless you're a lot older than you look, all your sins were future when Jesus took them on himself on the cross. But he did it once, and once was enough. Baptism is a beautiful symbol of that cleansing, that washing, that we are made clean through Christ's sacrifice. If you've trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. But you don't always feel like they're forgiven, do you? There are times when my past transgressions haunt me. When I am tempted to be immobilized by my guilt over what I did. And, and look, you'll recognize this. If there's something, and don't we all have something in our past that we wish we had never done? And, and you try and try to forget about it and all it takes is like a word or a name or a place, an image, and it all just comes flooding back. At those times when we don't feel forgiven, we desperately need to remember what we feel is not the truth. And what is the truth? Is that if you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are made clean. And when your past threatens to overtake you, you can remember that your past does not control you because you are clean. When doubt arises over whether you could ever be good enough because you know how not good enough you've been in the past, you need to remember that it's not about you being good enough. It's about you being washed and you have been washed clean. We can look back at our baptism as a very real, visceral, visual reminder that we have been made clean. And we don't have to keep trying to pay penance, and we don't have to keep trying to bargain, and we don't have to keep trying to lie about our sin because we've been forgiven. And that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences or fallout or implications from our sin that we have to deal with in this life. Absolutely. But how much different is it to confront those issues knowing that we're already forgiven. And to step into those relationships and to find reconciliation, but to be able to do it knowing that God sees us as clean. Does that mean that we will never sin again? No, it doesn't. But it means that when we sin, those sins have already been forgiven. Does that mean, as the accusation often comes, that anyone who believes this will just go out and live however they want to live because they believe their sins are forgiven, so they might as well just sin all the time? No, of course not. Because, like we said last week, when you are connected to Christ, the old you dies, is dead, and we are raised again as a new creation, that our desires change, that we look at the one who took our sin on himself, and we don't see Christ suffering for our sin and say, I want to do some more of that, but we say, how can I follow you 
the one who has cleansed me. If you've never been baptized, if you trust that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is enough to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and you've never taken the step of following him in obedience and baptism, I would highly, highly, highly urge you, do it. Get baptized. Symbolize what he's done. He has washed you clean. Proclaim it to everyone. You are washed clean. If you have been baptized, when those doubts, when those fears, when that guilt comes in and threatens to overtake you, look back to your baptism. Not because it itself was the process of making you clean, but because it so beautifully reminds us you are made clean. You have been forgiven. Let's pray. We're going to have some time to reflect and then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful for you, for who you are, for what you've done, for your forgiveness. God, all of us in in a moment of honesty would look inside ourselves and, and know we're dirty, we're impure, we're not good enough, and yet you, in your great love, took all of that impurity, all of that uncleanness on yourself and carried it far, far away. God, thank you. Well, God, if there's anybody here this morning who has not trusted in that, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak in their hearts, that their eyes would be open to see the goodness and the beauty and the glory of your grace, that they would believe in you, that they would trust in you. God, for those of us who are trusting in you, I pray that we would be reminded again and again and again that you have washed us clean. Help us to live like those who have been washed clean. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.